Today's sermon comes from Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And when he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and he beat them in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. If you're a runner, you've probably had the experience of hitting the wall. Your body just no longer wants to uh, move forward. It's actually a real condition for runners, really any athletes that are in any kind of endurance sport. There's this condition where your, your body just, the carbohydrates, the hydration has diminished to such a degree that your body just won't move forward. Uh, one day before the Boston Marathon, an article in Harvard Health predicted what would happen to thousands of runners the next day. It said this, come tomorrow morning, about 27,000 runners will begin the annual 26-mile, 385-yard mass run from suburban Hopkinton to Boston. But if past marathons in Boston and elsewhere are any indication, perhaps up to 40% of these optimistic and determined souls will slam into a sudden sensation of overwhelming, can't do this fatigue. Several miles, usually about five, before they get a chance to experience the glory of crossing the finish line. What is true of the body is true of the soul. There are seasons in life where spiritually and emotionally you hit the wall because of deep 
deep discouragement and or failure. And it's those moments where internally, maybe it never expresses outwardly, but internally you are ready to throw in the towel. You ever been there? Throw in the towel, ready to quit. In Acts chapter 18, Paul arrives in Corinth in this condition. He arrives in Corinth deeply discouraged. You say, how do we know that? Well, Paul writes letters or would write letters to the Corinthian church that we now have that describe his experience there. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. That's how Paul arrived in Corinth. He had hit the wall. He had come from Athens. In Athens, he was reasoning with the philosophers. And to do that, engaging with this kind of lofty speech, this philosophical wisdom. And from what we can tell, from a number standpoint, he had very little success in Athens. Very few people turned to Christ. And he didn't leave having founded a church, which we read in a lot of the other cities that he left. Now, we know one day a church was founded in Athens, but, but not when Paul left. Not to mention that, but on his first missionary journey, he was stoned to death almost. Second missionary journey, flogged and thrown in prison. Paul arrives in Corinth having hit the wall, deeply discouraged. And it'd be nice if we could say by the time he got to Corinth that things turned around. But they didn't initially. Says he arrived, he met this married couple named Aquila and Priscilla. Verse three, and, when, and he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So Paul gets to Corinth and picks up or takes up his practice of tent making. Now, up until this point, he had had churches supporting him. So we assume by the time he gets to Corinth that he probably had run out of money. And so he picks up this tent making practice. Now, why? I think there's two reasons. Number one is he didn't want to come across to the Corinthians as a huckster or a traveling philosopher or someone who was just going to make a lot of money and get out. That's actually what happened in Corinth. It was known for people would come through and philosophers would give a discourse, they'd give a speech and they would charge for it. So Paul didn't wanna be associated with those people that were doing that. In fact, 2 Corinthians 2.17, he says, for we are not like so many peddlers of the word of God. So Paul started making tents to support himself because he didn't wanna be a peddler or come across as a peddler to them. Second reason probably, is that although not as big as the Olympic Games, there were games that happened very uh, near 
in Corinth, near where he was, uh, and, and it would draw all kinds of visitors for these games to town. And so Paul saw an opportunity in making tents that he could provide tents for all these visitors, but in doing so, meet all kinds of people that he would be able to share the gospel with. Now, where does this all land? Well, Paul worked hard, sacrificed a lot, making tents to support himself. Worked hard, sacrificed, all to bring the good news to these people in Corinth. And what was the result of it? Well, it says that when he was bringing the good news in the synagogue, verse six, and when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. All of this hard work, all of this sacrifice netted Paul slander and rejection. They slandered him. They rejected him. He was discouraged, deeply discouraged. Can you relate? You work really hard. You sacrifice a lot for someone who needs help. And they blow you off and show no gratitude. No fruit for all of your labor. Now, in some ways, I've just described parenting. Not all the time, but in seasons. Moms, dads. Are you in a season of, of deep discouragement and failure? Not because of lack of effort. You're pouring yourself out. You're sacrificing. And there seems to be little or no results. And you've hit the wall. You're tired. Feels like a waste of time, and you're ready to quit. In some ways, I've described your job. You work really hard to honor Christ in your job, to do the right thing, which means you don't cut corners like most people do around you. You don't take the easy road, which oftentimes can be the unethical road. And so you stand firm to do what's right, and what results is a lack of respect, a lack of notice, a lack of gratitude. You feel like this is a waste of time. I'm honoring Christ and there's nothing in return. In fact, I'm getting the opposite in return. Negative fruit for my labors to honor Christ. Or, in many ways, this describes ministry. Not so much ministry as a pastor, although I experience this and I feel with Paul at times, but ministry in the church or in the kingdom where God has called you. You're teaching a Bible study and you wonder, is, anything getting, is anyone getting anything out of this? You walk away from a study you've taught and you feel so discouraged and you feel like that was a waste of time. Or the community group you lead, is it really worth it? I'm, we are sacrificing so much. We're giving so much and it just doesn't feel like there's any fruit from this ministry. Or the music that you're playing or the hospitality that you're extending 
or the behind-the-scenes work that nobody notices. Why can you press on in those seasons? Why can you press on when all you're ready to do is throw in the towel? You're ready to quit. You're ready to give up. You can press on because of what Jesus says to Paul in a vision one night in verses 9 to 10. And the Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. You can press on because first, Christ is with you. That's what Jesus says to Paul. Don't be afraid, don't go silent, because I am with you. It's almost identical language that Jesus speaks in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 to his disciples. He says, go make disciples of all nations, for I am with you always, till the end of the age. Not just in times of success, not just in times of failure, not in times of ease, not just in times of difficulty, but I am with you always. And especially when you're being rejected or when you've been rejected or when you're walking into a situation where you know you're gonna be opposed or you know you're gonna be rejected. Jesus says, you are never alone and I will never reject you. There's a beautiful, beautiful picture of this in Joshua chapter five. Moses has died. God has called Joshua to lead his people across the Jordan into Jericho where they would begin to inherit the land that he had promised them. On the eve of going into Jericho, Joshua looks up and there's a man standing in front of him with a sword drawn. And Joshua says, are you for us or are you against us? The man doesn't answer the question, but he says this. I am the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua falls face down, falls face down, and begins to worship this man. Now, who is this man? Who is the commander of the Lord's army? Well, in other places in the Old Testament, when someone falls face down in worship, to an angel or a man, there's, there's a rebuke. You don't fall down. Don't worship a mere angel or a man. But here, there's no rebuke. In fact, the, the commander of the Lord's army, this man says, you're on holy ground. The reason there's no rebuke is because this is God himself. And not just God himself, but this is Jesus Christ in human form before he would be born into this world. Imagine what that must have been like for Joshua. Full of fear full of trepidation, full of uncertainty, about to go into Jericho, and Jesus Christ appears to him to say, I am with you, and I am going before you. You have nothing to fear. Jesus gave Joshua courage. And when you are ready to quit, ready to throw in the towel, paralyzed with anxiety or fear, Jesus gives you courage by his spirit through his word. And not only does he give you courage by his spirit, 
but he gives you courage by his body, the body of Christ. Verse five, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Why is that so important? Because Paul arrived in Corinth alone. Now, now take deep discouragement and deep sense of failure. Now multiply it by you're all alone. You're isolated. That was Paul. He was by himself in Corinth. And then it says, Silas and Timothy came. And not only did they come, but they came bringing a gift. We learned that in 2 Corinthians 11, 9. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. That's meaning Paul saying, I made tents to provide for myself. I didn't burden you Corinthians. I didn't ask you for money. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. He's talking about Silas and Timothy there. Silas and Timothy showed up when Paul was in a place of deep discouragement, feeling a deep sense of failure. And they came with a gift, a gift of money, so that he could exclusively in that season preach the word of God. God sent people Right when Paul had need for courage, Silas and Timothy came. I can say with 100% confidence that every person here, albeit to varying degrees, every one of you needs courage right now for something you're facing. Courage for something difficult. And I can say that with 100% confidence because we're in a broken world. We are not in glory yet, which means there is brokenness all around us. There's something you need courage for. And Jesus promises to be with you and give you that courage. And he gives courage through the body, through the community. So the second question is, who in your sphere of influence right now needs courage to face something difficult? Who needs courage? And who do you therefore need to encourage? today? Why can you press on when you're ready to quit? First, because Christ is with you. But second, because Christ protects you. Christ protects you. Jesus says to Paul in verses 9 to 10 in this vision, he says, don't be afraid, don't be silent, for no one will attack you to harm you. Now, what's he saying to Paul? He's not saying, Paul, no one will attack you. Because that's about to happen in verse 12. He says, no one will attack you to harm you. And we see the realization or the fulfillment of this promise unfold in verses 12 to 17. Verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul. Here's the attack. And brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. The Jews were claiming that Paul's message was outside of Judaism and therefore that he and his companions shouldn't be protected by the Roman government like they were. 
And so Paul is about to speak up and defend himself, but then Gallia speaks up and says, this is an internal dispute within your Jewish community. You guys go figure it out. I'm not touching it. Now, the significance of that is this was a huge source of protection for Paul and his companions because it meant for the next 10 to 12 years that they could preach the gospel in the Roman Empire with the assurance they weren't going to get into conflict with Roman law. It was a huge source of protection. And so this was the fulfillment of Jesus' promise just a few verses earlier. You'll be attacked, but it's not going to harm you. Now, what does that mean for you when we say Jesus protects you? And the reason why that's an important question is because many of you have been through horrific seasons and situations. And you may say, I certainly didn't feel protected. The key to understanding Jesus' protection is understanding the difference between hurt and harm. Jesus promises that you will never be harmed, but he doesn't promise that you will never be hurt. And he gives us a picture, an example of this in John chapter 15. There, he likens the relationship between Christ and his followers to the relationship between a vine and a branch. The branch cannot live independently of the vine. The vine is this organic union. The vine feeds and nurtures and facilitates the growth of the branch. But branches need pruning. And pruning hurts. Pruning hurts, but it's not harmful. In fact, just the opposite. Pruning brings about greater growth. Jesus says it in in John 15, 2. He says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. While pruning in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing seems hurtful, it's not harmful. Henry Cloud draws a real clear distinction between hurt and harm. He says this, there's a big difference between hurt and harm. We all hurt sometimes in facing hard truths, but it makes us grow. It can be the source of huge growth. That is not harmful. Harm is when you damage someone. Facing reality is usually not a damaging experience, even though it can hurt. This difference is illustrated if you go and get an infected tooth pulled out of your mouth. Right? If you get an infected tooth pulled out of your mouth, that's not harmful. But when the Novocaine wears off, that hurts. Right, but the hurt is all part of this this process of it's leading to health. When Jesus prunes you, he's not harming you. 
It may hurt, but he's not harming you. Usually when we get to the point of not wanting to press on, come to the end of our rope, ready to quit, ready to throw in the towel, usually that happens because we've been hurt. We've we've been hurt. There's, There's pain, or we've been pouring ourselves out and sacrificing ourselves and nothing's in return. It just hurts. And yet it's those moments when we experience that hurt that we're reminded that Jesus prunes. And when he prunes, it hurts, but it's for greater growth. It's for greater health. And so the question is, how's Jesus pruning you today? How is Jesus pruning you today? And how do you need to to see what's happening through the lens of this hurts, but it's not harm? That actually Jesus is protecting me because he's pruning me and growing me, even though it hurts. Why can you press on when you're ready to quit? First, because Christ is with you. Second, because Christ protects you. And finally, because Christ has people for you to reach. Jesus says to Paul in verses nine to 10, don't be afraid. Paul, don't be silent for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, Jesus is not talking about there people who have already turned to Christ in faith and repentance. He's talking about people who have yet to turn to Christ, but people who Jesus has already purchased by his blood when he died on the cross. In other words, they belong to him, they just don't know it yet. And Jesus says to Paul, there are many in this city that belong to me. Imagine how encouraging that must have been for Paul. I mean, the, the opposition that he had faced, the rejection that he had faced in all of his journeys so far, and now even here in Corinth, when he arrived in the synagogue and got reviled and slandered, how encouraging this must have been. And to see the fruit of this promise before his very eyes, because Paul witnessed an incredibly unlikely conversion. He was teaching in the synagogue. They reviled him. They slandered him. So he left the synagogue and he went right next door to the house of this man named Justus. And he continued to teach in this house. But note what verse 8 says. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. This is shocking. The ruler of the synagogue that just slandered and rejected Paul came to Christ. Incredibly unlikely. Why? Because of the cost associated with it. Crispus lost his job by coming to Christ. He lost respect. He lost comfort. He lost social status. And yet Crispus was one of the many in Corinth that belonged to Jesus. And so Paul continued 
to preach. William Carey was a missionary to India in the 1800s, and he shares the story of his first Indian convert, a man by the name of Krishna. Krishna was a a carpenter, and, and through his carpentry, he became familiar with Carey and these other missionaries that were in the area. And when when Krishna first met William Carey, he had at that point broken from formal Hinduism, but he had basically adopted this sect of Islam as his belief system. And one day Krishna was headed to the river to bathe and he slipped and he separated his shoulder. And so he sent his children to the, the mission house of sorts where he knew there was a a doctor named John Thomas. And so at that point, John Thomas, who was a missionary doctor, began caring for Krishna to help his shoulder, but as he was caring for him, he shared the gospel with him. And he talked about the healing of his soul. And so Krishna started to read the Bible, and he started to study the Bible, not just with John Thomas, but with Carey and some of the other missionaries. And, And William Carey, says that there got to be a point where eventually Krishna proclaimed, I'm a great sinner, but I've confessed my sin and I'm free. Krishna came to Christ and it absolutely caused a stir in the Indian community. In fact, he was mocked. He was called a traitor. And yet he was still baptized and began following Christ. He was the first native convert in seven years of missionary labor and prayer. But that's not it. Gets better. Carrie explains. Krishna's wife and sister also made commitments to Christ, as did his four daughters. A neighbor, Gokul, and his wife came to Christ, and a neighbor, widow. They formed the first indigenous Christian community in that area, and they immediately began facing persecution and hardship and difficulty. Uh, Krishna went on to travel with the missionaries as they would preach in different places. He was the first native missionary to Calcutta. He preached, he started preaching at dozens of locations weekly, evangelizing people in their homes. He was the first writer of Christian hymns in Bengali. Now, don't you think that William Carey for those seven years where there were no conversions and no fruit, don't you think he became discouraged? All the sacrifice, all the hard work and no apparent fruit from it. And I imagine Carey probably clung to this promise that Jesus spoke to Paul. For I have many in this city who are my people. That's why he pressed on. Speaking about the power of Christ to redeem the worst of sinners, the most unlikely people, and to build his church, Russell Moore wrote this. The next Billy Graham might be drunk right now. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Darwin fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might currently be a misogynist, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist. The next Charles Wesley 
might currently be, a managing, be managing an abortion clinic today, or Charles Spurgeon. The next Mother Teresa might be a heroin-addicted porn star this week. The next Augustine of Hippo might be a sexually promiscuous cult member right now, just like, come to think of it, the first Augustine of Hippo was. Why can you press on? when you're ready to quit because Christ is with you. Christ protects you. And Christ has people for you to reach. Let's pray. Father, a number of us have come to the end of our rope, so to speak, a number of us have hit the wall. A number of us, at least internally at a heart level, are ready to throw in the towel. And yet we hear you this morning. We hear the promises that your son Jesus speaks to us. Father, for those who are in that place, would you assure them by your spirit that Christ is with them. Christ goes before them. Father, would you reassure us that, that Christ protects us, pleads for us, help us to, to see the distinction between hurt and harm, to know that we're being pruned, but it's for greater fruitfulness. And Father, there are so many people in this city of Jacksonville who belong to Jesus. They just don't know it yet. Would you give us the courage to share the good news of Jesus to those people so that they can respond to it? Father, would you keep us from giving up? Would you keep us from becoming pessimists? There is no pessimism in the gospel. There is hope and expectation. Would you bring our hearts to that place by your Spirit? And as we sing to you now, would you abide with us deeply and give us courage where we need it? And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.